live and move and breathe and have our being. And Lord, we are blessed by the love of our earthly mothers. Lord, what a privilege, what a blessing, what a joy. But Lord, there's something even greater, the love of our Heavenly Father. And Lord, we just ask as we go to your word right now that you would be our teacher this morning. Lord, not the words of men, but the word of God. We ask that your, the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit will be evident here this morning. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It is truly a blessing to have you here. If you're new here, if you're visiting, uh, visiting mom on Mother's Day, we hope you feel welcomed and loved and know that it's, uh, it's a joy to have you here. All right, well, we've been going through First and Second Peter, and we're not going to do that this morning, all right? But let me just say this, of First and Second Peter, the theme of, this, of these two letters is faithfulness, being set apart, serving God in the midst of great persecution and suffering. And we've been watching, and we will continue to see over the next couple of months or so, how Peter is used by God to encourage and exhort these believers who are facing such difficulty, going through such suffering, to stand for God in the midst of it. And as I was preparing 1 Peter chapter 1, the second half last night, and God's been kind of stirring my heart since Thursday, after the Wednesday study, so I'm preparing for Sunday, and I've been praying about it. I was thinking about how, with this being Mother's Day, that there are so many examples in Scripture of those who are examples for even those early Christian believers that they could look back to as examples of women who stood for God in the midst of great suffering and difficulty. Godly moms who were indeed godly examples. And so this exhortation to live faithful no matter what the cost that's being written in the letter of 1 Peter, I believe there are some great examples of godly moms and godly women in Scripture that we can certainly learn from. Now, the exhortations in 1 Peter, some of them we're going to look at next week, are be holy for I am holy. And that really means be set apart for I am set apart. That's the the more literal translation. Be set apart from the world because I am set apart from the world. And as I, again, I contemplated that as I was thinking about the godly moms in the Bible. Later we're going to see in 1 Peter, conduct yourselves in the fear of the Lord, that we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that our hope and our faith are in our risen and living Savior. And finally he exhorts them to have a fervent love for one another. And as I was contemplating all this, I began to think of different women in Scripture. I thought of a woman who you may not even know her name. Her name is Jehoshabed. Jehoshabed, maybe you don't even know who that is, but you'll know who her son was. But Jehoshabed lived in a time when a decree came out that all the children had to be put to death. And this woman refused to obey the world and instead stood up for her son. And she put him into a little ark and she set him out into the not to the river, and we know the story of Moses. And it's a God thing that she ends up being the, the nursemaid to her own son, no doubt praying for him and ministering to him and coming alongside him. And you look at a Moses, and it's easy to forget about the godly mom who was behind him, who God used in such a great way. Along with Jehoshabed, I began to think of other godly women. I thought of Ruth. 
Ruth, who was a woman who first husband died and was in an ungodly environment in a sense, and was then brought back, and she exhibited more faith even than Naomi. She exhibited great faith as someone who had a Gentile past. She'd grown up around pagan idolatry. And then we see the faith of this godly woman, and we know that she ends up being the great-grandmother of King David. And through her line would come Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I then also began to think of a, a young, another young woman who an angel appeared to her and told her the impossible. Oh, by the way, you're a young woman, you've never been married, you are betrothed to be married, but you've never been with a man, but you are pregnant. Are you kidding me? You must be out of your mind. What angel school did you go to? You must have skipped a class or something because that's just not possible. But instead, she showed great faith and she trusted and she became the earthly mother of our Savior. But as I continue to look at all these godly moms, there's so many of them in Scripture, there's one that just kept coming back to mind and it's one we looked at a couple of years ago on Wednesday night. Now this woman, this godly woman, lived in a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. That's what the Bible says. The world was so far away from God. It was in a time of extreme godlessness. Prayer was rare. The priesthood was corrupt. God had been silent in answering her own prayers. She was barren. And her husband took another wife, and then that, through that wife had many children. And here she sat, seeking God, praying to God, crying out to God, and yet she still had no child. The woman's name is Hannah. So turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we're going to look at Hannah this morning because Hannah to me is a picture of 1 Peter chapter 1 in action. She's an example of a godly mom in a time of great persecution and difficulty and suffering when she's going through a time when it doesn't seem to make sense, but yet she keeps trusting the Lord. And we're going to see the contrast between Hannah a godly mom, and Eli, a compromising dad. And we're going to see the difference in the fruit of the child that was raised up, that was prayed for, that was a gift from God, who was dedicated to the Lord by Hannah, and the sons of Eli, who was the high priest at the time, who compromises big time. And we're going to see such a radical difference. And I want to say this, because whenever we look at things like this, people can take it wrong, and please don't. I want to say that we can raise our kids in a godly home. We can pray for them. We can minister to them. We can love on them. And because of free will, they can still choose to rebel against God. And then there are those who maybe have parents who had nothing to do with God and God still in the midst of all of it reached down and grabbed a hold of them and brought them into a great walk with the Lord. So as we go through this, while I believe there are certainly great things we can learn, it doesn't make it a, well, if I look at my kids are not walking with God, I must be Eli. Well, that's not the case necessarily. But I do pray we would learn a great deal. You might be sitting here saying, I don't have any kids. I'm never going to have any kids. Can I just leave right now? What's this got to do with me? You know what? There's so much we can learn about the, diff the contrast between faithfulness to God and compromise. And it certainly impacts raising children, but it really impacts every aspect of life. So if you're here this morning and you don't have kids, this message is for you as well. 
because God does indeed have something to say to all of us. So I titled the message this morning, Raising Godly Kids in an Ungodly World. Boy, do we need to do that. Amen? Are we sleeping this morning? What's happening? Do we already have brunch beforehand? That food's settling in. What's the deal? All right? So we're going to contrast this praying mom who gives her son completely to the Lord and a compromising dad who's more concerned with being popular with his kids than faithful to God. That's a theme we're going to hear a lot this morning. You know what, can I encourage you? I'm going to get ahead of the message already, but I'm going to exhort you with this. God did not call you to be popular with your kids. Amen? Too often we're trying to be popular with them. They've got enough friends, they need some parents. Amen? And sadly what happens too often is we water it down. We want to be the cool parent. I want to be the cool dad. I want to be the cool mom. No, you know what? I want to be the godly dad, the godly mom. Amen? Have that heart to minister to our kids. So raising godly kids in an ungodly world, here are the points. Number one, be a praying parent. Be a praying parent. Praise God for moms who pray for their kids. Amen? And dads who pray for their kids. Many of us, if we had time, could probably stand up and say, yep, I was a mess, and my mom prayed for me, and here I am. Amen? I was a total disaster outside of God's will, and praise God for my mom who just kept praying. And you know what? Aunts and uncles can pray too, and grandparents, amen? It applies to all of us. So be a praying parent. Parent them with an eternal perspective. Number two, teach your kids the true meaning of success. Boy, this is so messed up in the world today. Success, guys, is not the accumulation of worldly wealth, but it's someone who has godly character. Amen? I would much rather have my kids on fire for God than famous before the world. Number three, keep rededicating them to the Lord. Almost every Sunday morning, I get up here and I rededicate all of our children yet again to the Lord. We need to have that heart every day. Like in that video, go in and pray for your kids each night. Go in and lay hands on them and rededicate them to the Lord. Number four, follow up your words with actions. Let me say that again. Follow up your words with actions. Too often we say the right thing and then we do nothing. And you know what, if you, if you do nothing half the time, your kids will take the risk every time. Oh, they say it, but they won't do it. If you love them, you'll discipline them. Amen? Those who the Lord loves, He disciplines. And then finally, warn your children of the high cost of rebellion. So we've got a lot of verses to look at this morning, so let's get at it. We're going to look again. So now, bringing this in context, what has just happened, Hannah had come and she was praying and crying out to the Lord. Eli, the high priest, comes out and sees her, and she, he thinks she's drunk. Because prayer was so rare in those days, to see someone actually crying out to God in prayer made Eli think that she had been drinking. That's pretty sad when the high priest thinks someone's praying is drunk because he's so, it's so rare. And she's crying out to God. Why? Because she has no son. And as we're going to see as we go through this, what's interesting to me is that Hannah is crying out to God, but God is preparing Hannah all along the way. You know, sometimes we think God is delaying, or God is forgetting, or God is slow. It was all God's preparation because Hannah is going to have a son, and her son is going to be a great prophet in Israel. 
He is going to be the link between the judges and the prophets. And this man, Samuel, is going to anoint the first king of Israel. He's going to be used mightily by God. But before he could be that man, he needed a mom who was willing to dedicate him completely to the Lord. And before she could come to a place where she was willing to completely dedicate him to the Lord, she needed to be desperate for God. And now that her husband's remarried and there's all these other children, she's at that point and she comes and she cries out and says, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him to you. He's yours. I'll dedicate his life to you. And so we know in chapter 1, she does have that son. Now I want to say this. God blessed Hannah because it would have been real easy to renege on the promise. Right? Anybody else ever done that with God? You know, God, if you'll just do this, I'll give every... Lord! It's at the drowning man, right? He's 10 miles away from shore. Right? He's swimming in. Lord, if you help me make it in there, I'll sell everything I have and I'll go to the mission field and I'll live my entire life just telling others about you. He swims for a while. He gets about five miles out. Well, Lord, I'll sell everything I have and I'll go on the mission field for 10 years, but at some point, I want to come back and resume my life. He gets a, couple, a mile out and all of a sudden, it's, well, well, Lord, I'll, I'll sell half of what I have and I'll go on a two-week missions trip. And, you know, and then, you know, as he's walking up on the sand, well, thanks, Lord, but I'll go to church on Sunday if I have time. And, you know, that's what happens. If sometimes we have this heart to serve God. Now, Hannah takes her son home. You know, he, he's born and she keeps him until she weans him. That means she only has him as long as she's breastfeeding him. So he was very young. How hard it must have been to go up and then give her son to Eli. Eli, the guy who thought she was drunk when she was praying. Eli, whose own sons are a mess. And yet Hannah does it, and she honors God, and she's just brought her son, she's given him to Eli, and now chapter 2 begins, and notice how it starts. She doesn't complain, she doesn't cry, she doesn't murmur. What does she do? She prays and she praises God. Here's a parent with eternal perspective. So here's what she says. And Hannah prayed and said. So she's left her son with Eli. She could have gone you know, and had a good cry somewhere, and it would have been understandable. But instead, what does she do? The last chapter ended with her and her husband and Samuel all worshiping. Now she gives her son, she gives her son to Eli, she gives her son to the Lord, she's being faithful to her promise, and what does she do? She bursts into a place of praise and worship to God, and this to me is one of the most awesome prayers in the Bible. And this from a woman who had just given the son, the only son, the son she had prayed for, for so many years into service for the Lord, and notice her response. This is the reason she could give her heart, could give her son away, is because of where her heart was. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. This is the heart with which she gave her son. She did not give her son begrudgingly to the Lord. She did not say, okay, Lord, I guess I have to give, man. I know if I don't, I'll be wrong, so okay, here you go. You know, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, amen? And we see the heart. She just gave away her little son, put him into the hands of Eli, and notice the heart with which she gave her son. Not begrudgingly, but joyfully. Doesn't mean it was going to be easy, or that she wouldn't miss him, but that she knew God's hand was upon him. It was part of God's eternal plan. Throughout Scripture, we see the connection between sacrifice and song. Have you ever noticed that? A sacrifice is made and praise comes out. 
In 2 Chronicles, And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also. In Matthew 26, Jesus sang a hymn with his disciples just before he went into the garden where he was going to be arrested. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas sang hymns to the Lord after they had been humiliated and beaten. In Acts chapter 5, after being beaten by the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the apostles departed from the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer Shame for the name of the Lord. Frequently in Psalms, you see David rejoicing in the midst of difficulty. How in the world is this possible? How is it possible for Hannah, who'd prayed so long, to bring this three or four year old boy, whatever he was, and bring him and put him into the hands of Eli the high priest and walk away? How is that even possible? Let me tell you how it's possible. Eternal perspective. She had her eyes on heaven. She knew God's hand was upon her son. His very birth was an answer of prayer. She knew that God was going to do great things through him. And she wasn't putting her son in Eli's hands, but in God's hands. And this morning, we need to come to a place where we take all of our children and we put them into the Lord's hands. God, they're yours. I rejoice in the fact that your hand is upon them. She trusted in the grace and the sovereignty of God, trusting that God is allowing what she went through to bring her to this place where God would use her son in a mighty and a powerful way. This present suffering is nothing compared to the glory which is to come. And Hannah's perspective allowed her to not only turn her son over to God, but to rejoice in knowing that he was going to have a great impact on eternity. And note it says she rejoices in the Lord. Not in her circumstances, amen? She didn't rejoice in her circumstances, she rejoiced in the Lord. Guys, that's the only place you're going to find the ability to rejoice is in the Lord, amen? In the Lord, we can rejoice. And then she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. The word horn there means strength. Hannah rejoices in the strength God has given her to respond in faithful obedience to the vow she had made to him. May we pray for strength and thank God when he gives it to us. She says, I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. I believe the reference here, and Pastor Dave's opinion, is to the other wife, Penina. Remember Penina? She had had multiple children, and Penina had been mocking Hannah as the cursed and barren wife who could give her husband nothing. And now, She's been given the son that God had promised her. She's given him back to the Lord and she can rejoice and even smile in the face of her enemies. Guys, eternal perspective allows us to smile in the face of our enemies. Though they slay us, though he slay us, yet will I trust in him. The worst thing they can do to me is the best thing that can happen to me. I have nothing to fear. And now she has a great joy and she's literally singing a praise song as she gives her son to to service to the Lord full time knowing she won't see him for a year. She would come back year by year. We'll talk about that in a moment. It says, because I rejoice in your salvation. She rejoices in her deliverance from the curse of barrenness, but the word there for salvation, I love this. I rejoice in your salvation. The word for salvation is Yahshua. This is the Old Testament. I rejoice in your Yahshua. Yeshua is the name for Jesus, in the Old Testament, I rejoice in your Yeshua. Boy, that's perspective, amen? 
She gets it. Here we have in the Old Testament the proper perspective for all of us. How is it we can give things away, give even our children into the hands of the Lord because our eyes are on Him. We have an eternal perspective and we rejoice in the fact that He is a faithful God. There's the ultimate reference to her eternal salvation from sin and death through the coming Messiah. In the midst of difficulty, her joy is in the Lord. Her strength comes from the Lord. She can smile at her enemies because her joy is in her salvation. Lord, give us that same perspective. Don't you love Hannah? you got to love this young woman. Maybe not so young, been praying for a long time for a child, and God has now blessed her. Now she says this. Boy, these words are so strong. Talk about the Holy Spirit speaking through someone. No one is holy like the Lord. Amen. What bad? This is good stuff. No one is holy like the Lord. The word holy is unique or set apart. There's no one like you, Lord. How can I not rejoice? I have you. There's no one like you. You're faithful, you're God, you're holy. I can trust in you. And she says, for there is none besides you. Not only is he holy, unique, and set apart, he is the only true and living God. No gods before, besides, nor after him. What an awesome prayer. Do you think you'd be praying this prayer if you just had to give up the son you've been praying for for who knows how long? We might be walking around going, well, God, you know, if you really love me, just let me take him home. I know I promised, but come on, you don't need him. I need him, I, you know. I'm going to go home and put under five kids with my husband. But that's not her heart at all. She just says, you know what, Lord, that you would use me. Lord, that you would use my son. Lord, you're so faithful. You're such a great God. There's no God beside you, before you, or after you. There's no one holy like you. You're the joy of my salvation. You're the reason I live and move and breathe. God, what a blessing to be your daughter. What a privilege, what a joy. And I love the next part of verse 2. Nor is there any rock like our God. Amen. The Bible rocks and our God is the rock. Amen. And we notice here this repeated image of the Lord throughout Scripture. In the song of Moses, in David's song, in 1 Peter 2.6, we'll get to in a few weeks, he's the chief cornerstone. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. But here we have... 1,500 years before Jesus comes to earth, and what is Hannah saying of God? You're the rock. You rock, you are the rock. Amen? Man, I love the joy flowing out of the heart of this mom. And I truly believe this. And you know what? When I say this, I have to be very sensitive because I never... If you're here, please know your pastor's heart. There are some here that maybe wanted to have children and were never, never able to. Maybe you were never even married. Maybe whatever... Please know that God is faithful and he has you right where he has you for a reason. And you're no less or different in God's eyes. Amen? Amen? Okay. That being said, I also believe that those of us who God has allowed to have children, God has taught us a great deal about unconditional love. Amen? When you have those kids, you saw in the video, that mom, I mean, you know, I'm tired, but I'm not that tired. Because I love you. And you're the priority. But notice, she's learned unconditional love through having this child, but notice that the love is so great, she's willing to give that child completely into the hands of the Lord. Boy, that's faith. And now here comes this song out of her heart. What a heart we see in this godly woman. 
Being the rock speaks of the Lord's strength, his stability, his steadfastness, that we can depend on him. His character is unchangeable. His promises never fail. And God, it's good to begin. When you begin, can I encourage you, when you start a prayer, begin it with praise. Amen? You know, what did Jesus, our Father who art in heaven, when he taught them how to pray, holy is your name. That's the beginning of the prayer, amen? It's amazing when we begin by addressing the one we're praying to, how it changes our prayer. And how it gives us confidence in our prayer, amen? So she's beginning this song and she says, you're the rock, you rock, you're it. There's no God before you, beside you, you're holy, no one's holy but you. And she's focused on him, puts perspective on the temporal needs and struggles of life when you realize how great God is. Hannah's not putting her son into Eli's hands, but into the hands of the one and only unchanging, holy, and faithful God. Verse 3, talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. Who do you think she's talking about? I believe again, probably Penina. Okay, I could be wrong. But you know what? It's a good warning for all of us. We should not be arrogant or proud in light of who we are in comparison to who God is. Amen? Who are we compared to God? Nothing. Nothing is too much credit for us. Amen? How great God is and how we're not. And yet we get so prideful so easily. I'm I'm sure I'm the only one that struggles with pride. But you know what? We do. We start to think we're something more than we really are. We hate pride when we see it in others, and yet we all struggle with it. Amen? You see it in others, and you go, man, that's nauseating, dude. Get over yourself. And then we do the same thing. But you'll notice here, this, this prayer, this worship, talk so very proud, let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. We should not be prideful because the only one who's going to judge our actions is God. You know when we're prideful? When we compare ourselves to other people. We are prideful when we want other people to think great things of us. Guys, it's irrelevant, ultimately, what others think of you. My daughter spoke at chapel her senior year, and this just came to mind. I remember her saying, you know what? And I love this quote. She just said, you know what? All of you come in here thinking only about yourselves. And the truth is, nobody else in this room is thinking about you right now. Nobody. You think that the way you're dressed and everybody's thinking about you, nobody cares. So quit worrying about what other people think and start living your life sold out for God because he's the only one that matters. I'm her dad in the back, amen, you know, amen. But the truth is that this is the heart of Hannah. God is great. How can I be prideful? How can I be, how can I be stingy? How can I hold on to that which he has given me? He's a great God. I can trust him. I put my children into his hands. He's faithful. We don't compare ourselves to him. Now note the contrast between exalting yourself and humbling yourself. Look at the next two verses. Verse five, 4. The bows of mighty men are what? Broken. And those who stumbled are girded with strength. So those who think they're mighty come to nothing. Their bows are broken. The thing that they trust in, the skill that they think they have, nothing. But those who stumble are girded with strength. Guys, God lifts up those who come low. And he brings down those who raise themselves up. 
Our flesh that compliments are only temporary. The bows are broken. But when we are weak, He is made strong. When we are stumbled, when we stumbled, he's, He girds us up. When we are hungry, He feeds us. When we are barren, He makes us fruitful. And like Hannah, it's in times of brokenness and desperation that God strengthens us. Look at verse 5. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Those who were full and sustaining themselves and their own abilities now have to hire themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. Again, those who are humble, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Even the barren has borne seven and she who has many children has become feeble. In times of brokenness and desperation, God is the one who strengthens us. Our strength and our hope is not in our position, our riches, our health, but in the sovereignty of God. And here she just cries out and says, look, God is the one who can open the womb. And the person who thought they had such great riches and having so many children, it came to nothing because God was not in it. But those who trust in the Lord, God can do great things. Guys, that's so true for all of us. Verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive he brings down to the grave and he brings up man that doesn't get more serious does it he kills and makes alive who is the one who gives you every breath you breathe god does amen if you're breathing in and out it's only because god said you could and yet we try to tell god what to do you know god you need to look i'm letting you breathe why don't you just step down amen If we're breathing, He should be glorified. He's promised, I mean, again, why do we pray over our meals? We should should just be thankful for every breath, for every piece of bread that we have, for everything that we have, realizing who gave it all to us. Boy, don't you love Hannah? Look at this prayer coming from a woman who just gave her son away. But she realizes, not my son, he's God's son. And God's going to do great things through him. And I was blessed to hold him and wean him. I was blessed to have him in my arm for these years. And I'm going to be excited to see what God's going to do in his life. Only God can give life. He alone is the one who opened Hannah's womb. Hannah understood clearly that Samuel was a gift from God. And she would honor God in how she raised him. And how she now had given him to serve the Lord full time. Such a good word for every parent. They're not your kids, they're his. They're on loan to you. Amen? Let's be good stewards of God's kids. Let's raise them in a way that will bring glory and honor to His name. Verse 7, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He lifts up. Our eternal perspective must go beyond the length of life to the way we live it day by day. Just as He can rescue us from death or permit us to die, He can make us rich or poor, famous or unknown, exalted or abased. He knows what's best. We're to be faithful and diligent and trust God to use our circumstances for His glory. All right, Lord, where I am, You knew, and I trust You. You have me here for a reason, and praise God for it. And right where I am, may You be glorified in my life. Lord, I don't need more for You to be glorified. I can have, I can be, you can be glorified in my life right where I am today. Again, this spoken from a woman who took the only child she had and gave him into service of the Lord. Lord, you're great. Wow. What a, an awesome example of a godly mom. You know what? Great riches most often take our eyes off of God. The love of money is the root of all evil, and only those who know Jesus are truly rich. 
She says in verse 8, He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes, to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He has set the world upon them. God not only controls the world's riches, but the positions of authority. Whatever position you're in, God's put you there for a reason. Hannah's case, mother to the next prophet of Israel, she can take peace in the sovereignty of God. And then when she says, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. This is another reference to the sovereignty of God. That he not only controls all of that happens on the earth, but he holds the earth in his hands. Guys, global warming is not a problem. Amen? You know what's a problem? Ungodliness. Rejecting the Lord. Turning from Him. The earth turning up a degree or two is not the warming most people should be worried about. Amen? There's eternal warming for those who reject God. And here's the point, guys. We should not take glee in that or rejoice in that. Instead, it ought, to, it ought to just grab our hearts to reach out to those who are headed to hell without Jesus Christ. She's saying, look, this is who my God is. How can I not trust him with my son? You know what? He holds the world in his hands. There's no one bigger besides better, greater. He's it. He's God. He's faithful. He's holy. He's just. He's pure. He's got my son. What better place for him? Praise the Lord. Love, Hannah. What an awesome and godly mom. Verse 9, He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. Boy, I ought to hang that up at every health club in town. This is from a guy who spent a lot of years lifting weights. He wouldn't know it looking at me now. But back in the day, you know, 15 hours a week working out. And you know, and again, there's nothing wrong with working out. Our body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. But guys, the Bible says a young man, you know, his pride is in his strength. You can see it sometimes. You're walking around, chest sticking out. Look at me, you know, that kind of mentality. And she's, as she's praying, you know what? That's going to come to nothing. If your trust and your hope is in your strength or your riches or your intellect, all things God gave you, by the way, you've missed it. Your hope needs to be in Him. He will guard the feet of his saints. Man, I love that. And, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. He guides the steps of those who follow him. But the wicked who depend on their own wisdom and strength will walk in darkness. They're lost and they don't know it. Guys, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And again, be good stewards of your body, but don't put your, your hope and your peace and your trust in your strength. Nobody cares that you can... I can whip that, guys. Good for you. God bless you. Knock yourself out. Here's the point. How about God? How do you do compared to Him? How would that match work out? How well would you do? He'd say, dust, and that's who you would be. Toast, pile of rocks, whatever you wanted to do, He's God, you're not, amen? She's saying, look, this is the God I serve. This is the God who's taken my son. He's the one who gave me the son. He's watching over my son. I can rejoice in the Lord. This is such a great, an awesome chapter. Verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge to the ends of the earth. Again, now we see how it works out when you stand up against God. 
The adversary is the Lord. The eternal perspective reminds us that all will be accountable for how they respond to the Lord. Not enough to believe that God has power, must know he will use it for his glory. The key is not temporal comfort, but eternal glory. It says he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Verse 10 there, the horn of his anointed. The word anointed is Messiah. 1,500 years. It's also in Greek, you know what the word is? Christ. So she's used Yeshua and Christ so far in this prayer. 1,500 years before Jesus came. Has she learned a little bit by praying and seeking God and waiting for this son? Isn't it amazing how we wait upon the Lord God shows us such great things? He does exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. Hannah's perspective on life is incredible. Her prayer is not only one of praise, but it is prophetic. Throughout Scripture, God reveals great things to those who are fervent whose souls are poured out in prayer. I think of Daniel and Ezekiel and Elijah, Hannah, through this fervent time of prayer, become a woman who was willing to give everything she had to the Lord, and the Lord reveals great things to her. Zechariah would later quote Hannah's prayer. In, in Luke 1, it refers to Jesus as the horn of salvation, which again was first mentioned here in Hannah's prayer. If Hannah had never been barren, she probably would have never come to the place where she could have been used so mightily by God. And she probably would have never prayed as fervently as she does. Amen? So we look and say, her barrenness was a blessing. It's easy to look from that perspective, but guys, what you're going through right now, as long as it's not a result of your sinful rebellion, don't blame that on God, but, there's, but if we're going through difficulty, God is allowing it that he might be glorified. Verse 11, Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. What an incredible act of faith. They leave their son with Eli, whose own sons were wicked. Hannah was faithful to her promise. She trusted the Lord. And look what it says there. The child ministered to the Lord. The word ministered means served. So this toddler is faithfully serving in the house of God, and don't even think for a moment that he didn't learn that behavior from his mom. Amen? He went into that house to serve because he had seen it in his mom and no doubt his father as well. Our young people can praise God and please God and worship Him and it's often a breakthrough in their walk when they experience God in worship. Can I tell you something? The thing, and not for me to judge in any way, but I'll tell you what, if you have a hard time worshiping God, you need to get to know Him. Amen? Because worship is really a reflection of where you are spiritually. Well, I just don't worship. Well, you need to get to know God better. Because if you get to know God, you can't help but worship. Amen? And here this little young boy comes in with a heart to minister and worship God as a toddler. Being raised by a godly mom. That took a long time to get to that point. Raising godly kids in an ungodly world, be a praying parent. If you don't, if you don't remember anything else, remember that. Now, teach your kids the true meaning of success. We need to pick it up. Look at verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were corrupt, and they did not know the Lord. What? Who's Eli? The high priest. So the whole problem with preacher's kids goes all the way back here. I'm a PK. You know what that is, a preacher's kid. Whenever you hear your PK, oh, well, what kind of disaster was your life? You know, people think, you know, those preacher's kids, you've got to really watch out for them. Pray for them. Amen? I'll take prayers for mine any time. But it says here, 
They were corrupt. The word corrupt means sons of the devil. They did not know God. They were sons of Belial or sons of the devil. They were sons of the high priest. They grew up hanging around the tabernacle. They were involved in ministry. They were in line to be the next high priest, and yet they did not know God. Now, they're responsible for their own behavior, but their dad's playing a part in that. You know, sometimes kids just rebel, and as parents, you must never assume because your children grew up in the church, go to Christian school, they must know God. It's not time in the temple, but the temple, your, their body's becoming the temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen? It's not just time spent at church. God has no grandchildren. Your kids don't get into heaven because you're saved. At some point, they need to have a head-on collision with Jesus Christ. Eli, the high priest, coming before God on behalf of people, and his own sons are walking in rebellion against God. They did not know the Lord. And you know what? We're going to see as we move on through the text that he had not done a good job of raising his kids. You know, as a pastor, I look at my kids, and I believe they need extra attention, not less. And I look at it that way, and I realize the pressures that can be put on, oh, you're the pastor's kid, you must be perfect, and you're never to make a mistake. And sometimes pastors will feel the pressure to never reveal the fact that their kids struggle. Let me tell you right now, my kids don't walk through the house singing praise songs all day. They make mistakes. They're sinners saved by grace, just like all of our kids are. Amen? And you know what? I'm not ashamed. I'm very transparent about it. And guys, at the same time, let me encourage you. Don't put expectations. Pray. Amen? Be a source of encouragement. But notice these young priests. They did not know the Lord. Verse 6, 13. Now watch this. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. Flesh hook, perfect name. So they did in Shiloh to all Israel who came there. Also before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat but raw. Now understand, here's what's happening. None of this is in Scripture anywhere. The people bring the meat in to be sacrificed. They take a flesh hook and they're taking for themselves that which belongs to God. Then they say, give us some of the raw meat so that we can set it aside and cook it later. They're basically robbing God to bless themselves. There is nothing new under the sun because it's still happening in the ministry today. Amen? It's so sad and so tragic. They took what God had not given And watch what happens. Look at verse 16. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Boy, that sounds like a godly priest. He says, now if they say, no, you must burn the fat, which is what the word of God says. The fat was to belong to God. It was the best of the meat. It was to be given to the Lord. It was a sweet-smelling aroma to Him. But they were saying, no, it's not God's, it's ours. We're taking it for ourselves. And then He said, and if you argue with me, I'm going to take all that you have, and if you won't give it to me, I'll take it by force. This is Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. They took the best meat for themselves. No fear of God or reverence for His Word. Only cared about material wealth. And it's been said of ministers, some have a wealth of thought and others have only thoughts of wealth. And that's who these guys were, thinking only 
of making money, accumulating material wealth with no thought of eternal consequences. And again, I'll say this too. We even hear this of Christians sometimes. Someone will say to me, I'll ask how someone's doing. I'll say, oh, he's doing great. Really? Yeah, I got a new job. He got a promotion. Just bought a big house. Just married a pretty wife. He's doing great. Well, he's still totally rejecting God and he isn't walking with the Lord. But other than that, he's doing great. Guys, if you're not walking with God, you're not doing great. Amen? You're doing horribly. Hophni and Phineas, from the world's perspective, they were in a position of authority. You know, they were robbing everybody who came in. They were very wealthy because of their position. From the world's perspective, they're doing great. We're going to see how God feels about how they're doing. Verse 17. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Look what happens when you have those who rob from God. What happens is the people no longer want to give to God. Again, I could probably go around the room. I won't have you raise your hand. But there have probably been some of you, at least sometime in your life, and maybe still today, refuse to give because you've given before and you've seen it used in an ungodly way. You say, oh man, I'm not going to give. You give and look what they do with it. It's ridiculous. And it is tragic to see what happens. Their sin was very great before the Lord because they took what belonged to Him and fed their fleshly desires. And then instead of turning people to God, they were turning people away from God. And the people began to despise the offering of the Lord because of greedy and ungodly pastors can cause others to stumble. Jesus would later say, it'd be better to have a millstone tied around your neck. We are not... Why do we not pass an offering here? Let me tell you why. Should we give? What's the answer? Yes. But should we give with a cheerful heart? Absolutely. And we don't, it's not wrong to pass an offering. But my conviction from the day we started this church is that no one would ever feel like coming to Calvary Chapel that we wanted your money. All we want is to see you walking with God and on fire for Him. I will say this, as you mature in your faith, you will give. But you'll give from a cheerful heart because you want to, not because anybody's twisting your arm up behind your back. Amen? So if you're, if you're giving with the wrong heart, don't. God will take care of everything. Amen? He's a faithful God. So be a praying parent, raising godly kids in an ungodly world. Be a praying parent. Teach them the true meaning of success. It's not worldly possessions, but godly character. Keep rededicating them to the Lord. We are not going to finish. Verse 18. But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child wearing the linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year after year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Can you imagine what this must have been like? So here's, here he is ministering before the Lord, this little boy, and the only time Hannah gets to see her son, at least recorded in Scripture, is once a year when they came to make the yearly sacrifice, she would make a robe for her little boy. Can you imagine her sitting at home making that robe, wondering, I wonder how much he's grown. I wonder what his year's been like. Boy, I can't wait to see him. And then every year going up and seeing him, and then every year leaving him there. Can you imagine what the temptation must have been? You go back, now he's four. Got a new little robe for him. Look how much he's grown. You hug him, you spend a few days with him, and you leave him there again. You come back the next year with another new robe, and he's grown a little more. She's rededicating him to the Lord every single year. She keeps leaving her son there. Guys, we need to rededicate our children to the Lord again and again 
and again. Eli's sons are stealing from the Lord. Samuel's ministering to the Lord. His mom is coming and continually rededicates his life to the Lord. And Eli's asleep at the switch. Verse 20, And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give your descendants from, from this woman for the loan that she has given to the Lord, that they would go to their own home. And watch this. Look at God. He's so great. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Guys, you can't outgive God. Amen? She gave her son to the Lord. She didn't know she'd ever have any more children, and God gave her five more kids. That's the God we serve. Meanwhile, the child grew before the Lord. Let me move on because I want you to see the contrast here. Again, we can't outgive him. He's so faithful. So follow up your words with actions. Look at verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. What? They would come up to make sacrifice, and his sons were sleeping with the women. So you've got assistant pastors who are sleeping with women from the church and stealing all the money. And they're your sons. Eli. Fired. Amen? So fired and in jail. And Eli instead knows all this. What does he do? He knew everything. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear your evil doings from all the people. No, my sons, it's not good. Report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father. Guys, there's a time when you got to go beyond just words and start taking some action. Eli, okay, good words, not enough. Get out the board of education, man. I don't care if they're 50, man. Get, right, amen? They need a SWAT. They need some discipline. They need to be removed from their positions of authority. You need to honor God above your kids. The best thing you can do for your kids is to honor God above your kids. The qualifications for a pastor in 1 Timothy says, One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule in his own house, how will we take care of the church of God? Here this guy, his sons are, are committing sexual immorality. They're stealing. There's no fear of God. And Eli knew what they were doing. All he did was give them a verbal warning, but took no action. And look what it says. At the end of verse 25, Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father, because the Lord desired to kill them. If the Lord desires to kill you, that's not good. Amen? The Lord desires to kill me. Um, that's not good. Eli, because you did not discipline your kids, God is going to bring holy judgment upon them. Guys, it's so much better to get the board of education than righteous judgment from Almighty God. Amen? Let us raise up our children. Let's discipline our children. Let's point them back to the Lord. Disobedience and rebellion must be met with the appropriate consequences. He didn't love them enough to discipline them. The result is they didn't hear his voice. They didn't respond in obedience. Look at verse 26. Look at the contrast. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and and men. Look at Hophni and Phinehas and look at Samuel. 
Hophni and Phinehas rebel against God. The Lord wants to kill them. Samuel ministers to the Lord, and God raises him up. I guess we're going to finish there. I'll, I'll summarize the last portion. But here's the point. Look at the difference in the parents. We can't blame it all on the parents. I want to say that yet again. But Hophni and Phinehas had a dad who refused to discipline their sons, who refused to make a stand for the things of God, who refused to discipline them, who refused to remove them from ministry. And here we had Hannah who laid down her life for the Lord and laid down the life of her son for the Lord and dedicated his life to the Lord and came year after year and rededicated his life to the service of the Lord who cried out and praised and worshiped and honored God who said, Lord, all that I have is yours and look at Samuel became a mighty prophet of God and Hophni and Phinehas in a few chapters are gonna be struck down dead in the same day. What happened? A godly mom a godly mom who prayed, who loved her son, who dedicated him to the Lord. It's amazing what God will do through the children of godly moms. Amen? I don't have time to read the rest of it, but you know what? A messenger comes and he tells, tells Eli, you know what? You have dishonored the Lord. You've honored your sons more than you've honored God. That's what happens. When you don't discipline your kids, you are telling your kids they are more important than God. Love your kids, love God more. Amen? And you're not doing your kids any favor to put them above the Lord. They're already prideful enough. Amen? They don't need you building them up and puffing them up. He said, you honor your sons more than me, and then the high cost is going to be that God is going to bring his judgment upon them and we know they're going to go out into battle they're going to bring the ark with them they're both going to die in a single day and when Eli hears the words that his sons are dead he falls back over and dies himself what a contrast between Hannah and Eli between a godly mom who dedicated her kids to the Lord and a man who compromised because he was more worried about having the favor of his sons than being faithful to God. Guys, it's not a popularity contest. The best thing you can do for your kids is be a godly mom, be a godly dad. Don't be afraid to discipline them. Always do it in love and never in anger. Amen? You ought to reveal the love of God when you discipline. But Lord, help us to be like Hannah. Help us to not just dedicate our kids in name, but to really do it. Not to renege on the promise. Lord, they're yours. And help us, Lord, not to be like Eli. Lord, help us to love you more than we love our kids, knowing that that will ultimately be the best thing we can do for them. So raising godly kids in an ungodly world, be a praying parent. When we pray, it gives us eternal perspective. Teach your kids the true meaning of success. It's godly character, not worldly power and positions. Keep rededicating them to the Lord because you can't outgive God. Follow up your words with actions. Love your kids enough to discipline them. And then finally, warn your children of the high cost of rebellion, that righteous judgment will come upon disobedience. Moms, God bless you. If you're raising your kids in a godly home, Lord, help you. Lord, strengthen you. Lord, minister to you and through you. It doesn't matter how old your kids are, you can still be a godly mom to them. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. And Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, Lord, that we would 
have that same Holy Spirit character that we see in Hannah. A woman who, Lord, understands fully who you are. The reason she was able to be the godly mom that she was is that she realized how great you are as a God. Saw the holiness of who you are, the greatness of who you are, the power of who you are, that you're the rock, that you're everything. And Lord, because of that, she could trust her kids into your hands, Lord, knowing that they're ultimately yours. Lord, I pray we'd have that same heart. Lord, I want to lift up our children to you. Be they three days old or 55 or 60 years old, whatever in between. Lord, however old or young our children may be, we dedicate, we rededicate them to you yet again. Lord, we give their lives into your hands. Lord, we, may we be faithful parents, teaching them the truth of who you are, loving them unconditionally, loving them enough to discipline them, Lord. And Lord, being a, a, a godly example that they can follow and learn from, just like Samuel learned from his mom. So Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. We thank you that you are our heavenly Father. You never make mistakes. You're so faithful. Lord, help us to follow in your path, to walk hard after you, to seek first your kingdom and your glory, to trust all that we have into your hands, including our children. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song. Splendor of a king, clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice, as he wraps himself in my Darkness tries to 